Thanks, Chris. Good morning. It's good to see you. How are you guys? You're here. Good. Hey, we're going to be in the book of Mark today. If you turn to Mark chapter 12, I'd appreciate that. Hi, Marty. Mark chapter 12. We will be starting uh, full force into Ruth next week, but uh, had another one of those, as Hoyt put it last week, some elevator music sermons right in between, and uh, I, don't, I don't know if it's that or not. Um, I love this, the word, this is a parable uh, of Jesus, and, and uh, it's a parable of the vineyard owner. And as we look at that, I, I want you to, to know and, and understand that, that our heart is constantly, it's seemingly at war with who to serve. And, and Jesus, as, as Jesus came, and as Jesus teaches, and as Jesus died and rose again, uh, he is constantly battling for our heart. And so there's this friction that will come up, isn't there? There's a friction between his battle for our heart and our battle for our own desire and our own will. And, and that's often what Jesus was fighting against when he told a parable. And, and it's still true today that you and I are still fighting that, that battle. And so as we look at this parable, uh, it, it's, parables are interesting because they, they usually were meant to point out error in, in the ways of people and the ways of the heart. And maybe error in the way, way that you're thinking. Uh, it certainly usually included uh, characters from everyone that might have been listening. So if you have the Pharisees or the teachers of the law, that, that often kept a close eye on Jesus because they wanted to know what's he saying, what's he saying about us, is he wanting to, to kind of come in and, and get rid of us, what, what's, what's Jesus want to do here? So they, they were careful to listen, because the, even more careful because the people, the other people that were listening were people that they had control over. So they had the people who were listening on the, on the mountainside to Jesus were people that came to their synagogue or came to their group and, were, and listened to them teach. So they wanted to know, what are, what are, what's he telling these people? Am I still going to be able to remain in control and have some power over them? And, that, and that's what they would use. They, they might hide it and say, well, I still want to have influence in their life. But the influence was power and control. They wanted to maintain power and control. So when Jesus came, if you read through the gospel accounts of Jesus speaking to people and, and speaking to Pharisees, he doesn't have a lot of nice things to say. And it, it pretty harsh words. And, and all of that harshness and strictness, we're going to see kind of why that happened uh, here today. And this is kind of a, a culmination of, of his teaching, because this is during Passion Week, and we'll see that in a few minutes as well, uh, kind of the setting for this. But I, w- I just want us to know that, that usually parables will strike a chord in our heart. That parables are meant to stir up some kind of emotion. And usually it's, it's almost like a trick. He'll tell us a story wanting us to get emotionally vested on the right side, and then he'll blast us with the fact that we actually are not living that way. He'll say, why don't you try that out? And, and constantly this battle is there. Do we, do we reject the Messiah and push him away? Or do we, do we accept and receive what the Messiah has to offer and who he is? And that's, that's life. That's, that's the choice in life for everybody. Now, many people would, would want to equate Jesus as a spiritual guru a guy who's, who's pretty, pretty well-vested and, and, and versed in teaching and knows, knows some pretty good stuff, and he's to be looked up to. And we might even put him on a shelf as a spiritual guru of our, our quote-unquote religion. But, but if there's no life from that, if there's no real repentance, there's no real humility in our own heart to, to receive him as Messiah, not just a guru, but as Messiah, the only one who can save us, God in the flesh, then there's no real relationship there. And we're continuing to walk that path of rejecting the Messiah, even though we put him on a shelf and say he's my spiritual teacher. He's a good teacher. So Jesus wants to be more than that, and he comes and saying that it is more. Uh, he is more than that. 
And why he came, there's more to why he came than just to be a good spiritual teacher. So we are in Mark chapter 12. We're going to read verses 1 through 12. I'll pray for us, and then we'll get, get right at it, okay? Father, thank you so much for your grace and your love that you've showed us through Jesus Christ. As we gather today, we gather to, to lift him up, to, to, to show and reflect the glory and goodness that is in Christ. We don't want this to be about us. We want you to invade our heart and to ruin us or wreck us if you need to, that we would be more committed followers of Jesus, that you would own our heart, that we would surrender to you, and that you, and through that, would give us life through your blood. We thank you for that. God, we ask that as we look at your word today, that it would be living and active, that you would, you would let it penetrate deep into our heart, that, God, you would challenge us and change us, God, conform us into the image of the Son, that we would continue to reflect his glory. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're in Mark chapter 12. We're looking at verses 1 through 12 together. It says, He began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug out a pit for a wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenant farmers and went away. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the farmers to collect some of the fruit of the vineyard from them. But they took him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another servant to them, and they hit him, uh, hit him on the head and treated him shamefully. Then he sent another, and they killed that one. He also sent many others. Some they beat, others they killed. He still had one to send, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenant farmers said to one another, This is their heir, or this is the owner's son, the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, killed him, and threw him out, uh, out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill the farmers and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and is wonderful in our eyes. They were looking for a way to arrest him, but feared the crowd because they knew that he had spoken this parable against them. So they left him and went away. And we're going to dive into this. We're going to look at like three different sections of this, of this parable today, and, and we're going to look at the parable itself and, and how it kind of engages with the culture and how that, if you were a listener or a hearer of this parable during that time, you'd be like, oh, that resonates with me. I understand because Bill has that vineyard over there, and I get how he, he operates that, right? So you're going to kind of see the parable in cultural context, okay? Then we're going to go into the interpretation of it and see what, what was Jesus actually talking about and who was he talking to and what did it mean? What was he trying to imply, not just imply, but actually factually state, by this parable. And then Jesus leaves us at the end with a choice. A choice that, that brings Jesus from beyond just a spiritual teacher or guru or good person that we can listen to, but, but a choice to either accept him as Messiah or reject him and be judged. And that's the choice he leaves us, and that's the choice he leaves everybody. So with this parable, uh, I want to talk about where it's situated in Scripture. First of all, it's, it's also uh, in, in Matthew and Luke. The same parable, and there we'll look at kind of some of the other other little points of those uh, passages as well, the, the parallels and some of the additions that we can see a more full picture with uh, later. But this is situated during Passion Week, 
So this is towards the end of Jesus' ministry on earth because Passion Week was the week what? Jesus eventually went to the cross and died. So he, he's come in to Jerusalem in a triumphal entry, right, on, on, on Palm Sunday. And what are they singing? They're singing, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're like, this is, this is our Lord. This is our Messiah. This is our Savior, our Rescuer. He's the horn of salvation. This is the, the guy that, that everyone has talked about, prophets have talked about. And we, we've talked about this too. There was this mindset in people that, that the Jewish people would have a Messiah. They would have relief. But see, it, it went further. And, and although it was, it was said and stated that the relief really had to, had, to be, had to happen here, what they were expecting was relief from the man. Because Rome was so oppressive and, and their history was so filled with oppression and, and slavery and, and, and exile. And, and a lot of that was judgment from God. But they wanted to be this free nation that didn't have to worry about the outside forces. Didn't have to worry about Rome anymore. So they were expecting, yes, our Lord, Messiah, will be the king that rules and reigns. And, and he'll take care of all of our problems. He'll solve that. But on a much deeper level, and that, that's true, that will happen. One day he will return and rule and reign forever. But on a much deeper level, he, he wanted to rule and reign in the hearts of people because the hearts were the problem. Remember, our hearts are, what in, are in conflict, aren't they? It's a thing that continues to, to wrestle. It wrestles with God. It wrestles with truth. It wrestles with our own pride, our own ego. It wrestles with our own pleasures and desires. It often wants to put me first instead of receive anything that the Lord would say, or, or, or maybe even anyone else, the Lord's agents, the Lord's messengers. So it's during Passion Week. It's a triumphal entry. They're hailing him as the king. Okay, and, then, and then he has some, so there's some triumph there, some victory being had, and then, then it goes into some other, other pictures of Jesus going into the temple because the, the Pharisees had set up a, a money exchange system in the temple saying, hey, listen, I, I, we're going to set up a, a way where you can come with your kind of okay sacrifice, but hey, we have a better one for you. Have I got, I'll make you a deal today. So they had set up these tables and these, uh, these money changers were in the temple exchanging their sacrifices for money. They were making money off of that. I'll give you a deal. I'll give you, uh, actually, you know, for today only, it's buy one, get one, right? For the low, low price. That's what was going on. So Jesus goes in there and says, this is not what my father's house is about. My father's house is a house of what? Prayer. And he flips over tables and takes a whip and starts whipping people to get out of there. That is not what he had intended it to be. And, and we're going to look today at, at why. why. Why was he so angry? Well, certainly he was angry that they were doing things like that and it wasn't focused on the Lord. But, but see, the, the rulers, the religious teachers that had been placed in power and position to influence were supposed to be shepherds of God's people. Servant leaders who would help guide God's people toward God, not towards oppression, not towards a position where they would be in poverty because of money changers and people in, the, in, in charge wanting to fill their pockets. That's not what God had intended. So he has this time of triumphal entry. Like, well, he's here, he's here, he's here. And this is a, a, an affront to all these Pharisees because they're going to lose some power. And then he goes in and he like, tears up the temple and saying, you got, you're, what are you doing? What have you created here? And, and, and Jesus was very, very forthright about this is wrong to them. And now he continues to tell parables. And he's telling this parable and, and wanting to kind of tie it up and, and help us understand what's going through his mind and, and, what, and, and who are these players that are, that are present sitting amongst him, but who's in the story and how do they relate together? Okay? 
So these people, the, the, the people on one hand were, were wondering uh, whether or not, and they're watching Jesus, they're wondering whether or not they had actually led and directed them and set the right course for them. Like, I'm hearing Jesus say some things, I'm seeing him teach some things. Is this, I, I've never really heard it this way before. Why not? And, and have you ever had that moment when someone finally teaches you something, and you're like, why didn't my other teachers tell me that all those years? Could have avoided so much hardship if they would have just said it plainly. Now, that, that's, that's true for you and I, too, by the way. We're, we're called to, to love people towards the gospel of Jesus Christ and to share the gospel. You don't have to have the gift of evangelism to go share about Jesus and the hope in Jesus. But, but God forbid that one of my friends finds and comes to know Jesus in 10 years and looks back and says, man, I really wish Brandon would have shared this with me. I could have avoided 10 years of misery, 10 years of hurt, 10 years of pride. I could have come to faith in Christ. So you and I have a responsibility as well. It's not just the spiritual leaders God has entrusted, but all of us. He's entrusted this message, this mystery of Christ in us and the gospel and the hope to share with the world. And we do it with gentleness and love and respect, but we do it none the same, that people might know Christ and, and, and live. So they're wondering, are my spiritual leaders setting us on the right course? Right, they see things from Jesus, and they see things in Jesus that they don't see from their leaders. So that's one population. And then on the other side of this, the other hand, we have the spiritual leaders there, the, the quote-unquote spiritual leaders of Israel. They're growing angry because Jesus keeps making them look bad. And they have influence, right? They have control. They have power. They want to keep that, but Jesus keeps making them look bad. You know why? Because they are bad. They're not good. And if you feel like Jesus is making you look bad, it might be because you are bad. And you're full of yourself, and you need to get over that and humble yourself before Him so you can let the gospel transform your life, let Jesus transform your life, and then live outwardly for His glory and goodness. See, they feel, this, these leaders, they felt, listen to what they felt. They felt that His presence, right, His interaction, His love, His shoulder-to-shoulder exchanges, His presence, they felt that His compassion for people, that his teachings, right, teachings full of what, what he come in, both grace and truth, right, his teachings were all a real threat to their power. Newsflash, if you feel threatened by positive interaction, connections, by compassion, and teaching full of grace and truth, you may be power hungry, and, and you're not in the truth. When, when the Pharisees feel, felt threatened by that, that's, that's not a good combination. It's not a good place to start. There's another aspect of this parable I think it's really important to look at. You know, a lot of people want to say, well, the, a parable is stated, and it's a, it's a story. It's, it's verbatim what's going to happen. It, it connects perfectly with life. It doesn't always do that, and we're going to see, we're going to see that played out here because there's a portion of this parable we just read where the, fa- the owner eventually sends who? His, his only son. Uh, obviously, there's a parallel here, right? We can look back at the cross and say, oh yeah, that makes sense. The father sends the son to die. But it wasn't a mystery. It was, to God, when he sent Jesus, it wasn't a mystery what was going to happen. See, in the story, it feels like the father's hopeful. Maybe they'll respect my son. So he's hopeful that, that as, he, as he sends the son, that he's going to go there. And, and the father's like, I don't know. He, he may, he, they may treat him okay. And, and the people are listening like, no, no, don't send him. Don't send him. Like, like we've seen what's happened to all the servants. We've seen how they've treated him. He's like, well, this is my son. Maybe they'll respect him. He's got the blood. He's got, he, he's got the authority. He's probably got the ring on his finger and, and the robe to wear, and he has the authority to go there. 
Well, what did they do with him? They killed him, right? That wasn't a surprise to God when he sent Jesus. When Jesus came, it wasn't a surprise, okay? Although maybe in the story we could kind of relate it that way. I think there was a little bit of a, of a poking fun at the Pharisees, though, with that statement. And we'll look at that in a few minutes. But, but it's not a surprise that Jesus went to the cross. It wasn't, Jesus wasn't surprised, and God wasn't surprised. In fact, we just celebrated Christmas, where we say Jesus was born to what? To die. He, knew, he knows that. John 10, 17 to 18 say this. It says, this is why, Jesus is speaking, this is why the Father loves me. Because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. Jesus is speaking. that he, he, It's not that he doesn't know he's going to die. He's like, Father loves me because I lay down my life so I can take it up again. No one takes it from me. This is important as well. No one takes it from me. And, and we're going to see how, how yes, the, the Jewish leaders, even the, the people there, they, they crucified him. They put him on that cross. They nailed him. But you know what really nailed him there? His love. And, and, and Isaiah says, and, and Isaiah tells us that God was pleased to crush Jesus, right? Because it would lead to our forgiveness. It was God's pleasure to do that. He says, I, I, I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down. I have the right to take it up again. I have received this command from my Father. Before the foundations of the world, God knew how he would conquer sin. And it was that cross right there. That he knew when Jesus came. It wasn't just to be, man, Jesus, I, I really hope you can go down there and kind of straighten these people out because if you can't, it, it might go bad for you. I really hope they'll respect you. They didn't respect any of the prophets that came. They've, they've beat them up and killed them. In fact, they, didn't, they don't even really respect those spiritual leaders now because they're taking, being taken advantage of. But I really hope they'll respect you. You're, you're the righteous one. You're the one that's supposed to be sent. You're the Messiah. And when you show up, you'll straighten them out. You'll get them straightened out, and they'll repent of their sin, and they'll turn to you in, in faith and trust, and, and, and they'll, they'll offer sacrifices conveniently whenever they need to for their sin. It'll be perfect the way it should be. That is not what God knew was going to happen. And In fact, God, and we talk about Hebrews, God, God shows us that Jesus was to come to be the priest that would be the last priest and would offer the final sacrifice once and for all, and it would be done. And that sacrifice was not just to come and set them straight. That sacrifice was that Jesus would be nailed to the cross as the perfect lamb sacrifice for our sin. And that his blood poured out would be, would be there as spilled out for the forgiveness of sin. And see, we even like to leave Jesus there. And the story says they, they killed, killed the son and they threw him outside of the vineyard. We like to leave Jesus, just throw, throw him on out. You know, he's dead. Let's move on. There's a lot of dead gurus, right? A lot of dead good teachers out there that we, we can look at and quote. Jesus didn't stay that way. Jesus rose from the dead. He, he has his, his ability to lay his life down and to pick it back up again. You know why? Because he didn't let someone kill him for something he had done. He did it for something I had done. He didn't get nailed to the cross because he deserved the punishment. He got nailed to the cross because he can overcome the punishment. And he overcame it by raising from the dead, saying, look, look at me. I am God. I am, I am the one sent to redeem. I am the one sent to conquer but it's got to start here in our own heart. Don't just put me back on the shelf because I, I died and I went away. Let me reign in your heart because I live victoriously to conquer sin and death once and for all. That's what we're talking about. Jesus came to die. So let's get into this. Let's get into the parable. Number one is the parable. I, I want to kind of go through it. Mark, go back to Mark 12. If you've turned away to something else, go back to Mark 12. 
And we're going we're gonna to go through the parable and kind of bring in some of the other scriptures from Matthew and Luke to kind of make a bigger picture, make a fuller picture of what was happening there, okay? So we see, it says, as he began to speak to them in parables, or he began to speak to them in parables, and this is something that they often did, he says, a man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug out a pit for a wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenant farmers and went away. Okay, now, now we stop there for a minute. That, that's a very plausible story. It's like, oh yeah, that, I was telling you earlier, my friend Bill, that, that's exactly what happened to Bill. He, he had a vineyard, he put it together, made, a, made a, a vineyard and hired some people and went away and was on the beach in Hawaii for some time, whatever he was doing. And, and he was the owner of that and he leased it out to people who, who would help for, uh, produce a fruit and harvest the fruit. And then you'd send for your share. You'd, you'd send servants. You'd go and you know, give, me, give me my cut. Today we just do a bank transfer thing and you get money in your account. That's, that's plausible. That's what happens, right? And especially during this time, they know people that, that are doing this. It says at the harvest time, he sent a servant to the farmers to collect some of the fruit of the vineyard for them or from them. So he's going to get the fruit. He's, he's probably not going to get actually the fruit, maybe the wine, but probably not the fruit or the wine. He's probably just going, give me the money now. You've, you've done this. You've sold it. I, I, I want the money. So money, you know, can, can travel a lot better than big wine cisterns. So he, he, he wants the money. But they took him, and here's where it gets interesting, okay? This is an injustice. It may have happened before in different times. Maybe they heard their great uncle had this experience or their friend's friend of friend knew something like this. It says they took him. They took that messenger, that servant that came, and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Like, well, that's not good. Like, this is not a good thing. That, they should not have done that. This is, this is, they are servants to this owner, and they are to be servants to the servant of the owner because the, the servant comes on his behalf. So the, their, their sensibilities are being tested a little bit right now. Like, this is not good. That, what they're, they're feeling is an injustice happening. And in their mind, they're like, well, that owner better go to the government, and he better get, he better get them rallied around him and get, and get the proper documents in order, and they better go storm down that vineyard and, and get those guys and, and hold them accountable. That's kind of what would happen in this circumstance. You have every legal right. There's legal contracts about you being a vineyard keeper. And a tenant, a tenant, and if you aren't doing what you're supposed to be doing, if you're, if you're beating up my messengers and my servants, we're going to have a problem. And, and much like a lot of Jesus' stories, and I think about the prodigal son, the story of the prodigal son. When, when told as a parable in the cultural context, it was really a story of deep shame on the father's part. Because the father didn't really hold his son accountable, and the father allowed his son to kind of walk all over him, and the father ran to his son when he came back. Like almost, the father was almost groveling that the son come back and return. It's wonderful to look at that picture and say that's the, the heavenly father to us. But when you in a cultural context, you're like this is this guy's a shameful man. We should probably not associate with him. He's going out of his way when he should be beating his son senseless for what he's done. He's going out of his way to love on him. So there's a, there's a, a pride in this culture. And when you send a servant to your vineyard to collect your, your share and they beat him up and they treat him poorly and leave him empty-handed, there's, there's a proud response to that, an honorable response to that, and that's to go in full force with swords and take care of business. Well, what happened? Verse 4. Again, he sent another servant to them. He's like, well, I'll try again. And they hit him on the head and treated him shamefully. And these words are, it's a pretty graphic tale he's telling. He's, these guys got beat up pretty good. Verse 5, then he sent another, and they killed that one. You'd think he'd stop there. Their sensibilities have been absolutely shocked about what's happening. And then Jesus goes on, he says, he also sent many others. 
And you're, you're almost shaking your head like, why? I mean, this is horrible. This is happening. It shouldn't be happening. But why in the world is the owner still sending messengers? That they are not getting the message, right? He also sent many others. So that some they beat and others they killed. Again, shocking their sensibility. And the next line, it says, he still had one to send in verse 6. He still had one to send. And, and the audience is like, oh, no. What are you doing here? Now, this audience probably, probably has some of their kids with them. Like, like you might be a parent sitting there, and your son is sitting next to you, your daughter sitting next to you, your, belo- your beloved family. So Jesus goes on. Their sensibility is shocked. This is unreasonable. But then he says this, and he still had one to send, a beloved son. And can you feel the cringe right there? Why would you do that? Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. They'll respect my son. And at that point, everyone that's listening, saying, This is absolutely foolish. This is ridiculous that this is happening. Why in the world would you not send all the authority to take care of this problem? Why in the world would you send your son thinking that maybe they'll respect him. So now they think this, this owner's a fool. He is a fool. He says, then, then it says, the, the tenant farmer said to one another, this is, this is his heir, right? His son, his one and only son. He says, come, let's kill him, and the heir inheritance will be ours. Culturally, there was law about that. This is the only heir there is. They, they've been working that land for probably some time, and there's a law that, that's, that's culturally a law. If you're working the land and no one... No one's there to inherit it. After three years, it's yours, the, one who, the ones who are working it. What are they looking for? Money? Power? Control? Sound familiar? The Pharisees at this point have, have to understand, like, Jesus is pointing them out. Jesus is speaking about them, about their inability to, to shepherd well and their desire to lord it over and to control. So what in verse 8 it says, so Jesus ups the ante here. So they seized him, killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? Now that question is asked in this, but it isn't answered by the people in this, this, uh, in this gospel. But it is in Matthew. It says, he will completely destroy those terrible men, they answered. See, at this point, they are so, so angry. It's like, please, do ter- just, these people are terrible. Destroy them. Wipe them out. Get rid of them. It says they'll destroy those terrible men and lease his vineyard to other farmers who will give him his fruit of the harvest. Like These are not reliable men. Get rid of them. Be done with them so that you can replace them with good men and stop having your messengers and your son killed. That's what they said. In Mark 9, verse B, or part B, he says this. Jesus answers, says, yeah, he will. He will come and kill the farmers and give the vineyard to others. Then in Luke, it says this. But when they heard this, they said. So the people, they heard all of what we just talked about. It says, and when they heard this, they said, this must never happen. This must never happen. This is horrible. Jesus, I wanted to hear kumbaya. I wanted to hear a sweet sound. I wanted you to teach me something awesome. And you are giving me this graphic illustration of of death and shame. This cannot happen this way. May it never happen. That's that's their, their inside now saying that, right? 
That that's, so that's kind of where they're at. That you hear this parable, and, and that's where they're, kind of, they're left. Like, this is not good. Now, meanwhile, the Pharisees are steaming. And I think they think, yeah, this, may, this should never happen. But they're watching the reaction. Because they know in their heart, they already have decided and wanted to end Jesus. They want to get him out of the way. They're looking for any opportunity where they may have public support to end Christ's life. Certainly his influence. So let's move in from the parable. Let's move down to the interpretation. And we'll add the last part of the parable in with this part, okay? I want you to turn to Isaiah chapter 5 with me. One of the things about, as we talk about the parable, the, when Jesus first said, listen, a man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a pit for a wine press, and he built a watchtower, the, the Pharisees for sure, the religious rulers for sure, they know they've heard this before. Like, they know what Jesus is referring to. And that probably sets a stage in their own heart that Jesus is pointing them out. Now, some of the people that are there, but maybe they're more common people, but they, they still have had some Bible training and teaching. Maybe they, maybe it resonates with them. Maybe it doesn't. But it certainly does with the religious leaders because they know all about Isaiah chapter 5. They know all, all, they know all about what it says and how it points, points out who the characters really are here. So let's look at that. Isaiah 5. Talking about the interpretation of this, we're going to look through verses 1 through 7 together. It says, I will sing about the one I love, a song about my loved one's vineyard. The one I love had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He broke up the soil, he cleared it of stones, and he planted, planted it with the finest vines. He built a tower in the middle of it and even dug out a wine press there. He expected it to yield good grapes, but it yielded worthless grapes. Now see, they know this story. They know this illustration. They know that Jesus is now connecting the dots here. And it's very dangerous because of what happens next here. Okay, carry on verse 3. So now, residents of Jerusalem and men of Judah, please judge between me and my vineyard. There's this, God instills and puts people in power to, to, to rule and to create justice. Then he says, what more could I have done for my vineyard than I did? Why, why, when I expected it to yield good grapes, did it yield worthless grapes? He's a little upset here. Like, I, I, I created this awesome vineyard. I planted the seed. We, we made a fence and a wall. We put a, a, a wine uh, press in there. We, we put a tower. I mean, this is, this is the place to be. And then I'm going to put in there stewards, people, men of Judah, who will take care of my wine press, take care of the vineyard. And he's like, well, it's not working. Something's not, not working here. And it goes on, verse 5. Now I will tell you what I'm about to do to my vineyard. This is the judgment part. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will tear down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland. It will not be pruned or, or weeded. Thorns and briars will grow up. I will also give orders to the clouds that the rain should not fall on it. That's pretty deep judgment, isn't it? You're rejecting what I have put up for you. Verse 7, here's the interpretation part. For the vineyard of the Lord of armies is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah, are, uh, the, uh, the, men of Judah the plant he delighted in, he expected justice but saw injustice. He expected righteousness but heard cries of despair. You see, God... God gave us this, this ability as a people to, to worship Him and love Him and, and learn from Him and obey Him from our heart. 
And that our response would be that reflection of God's glory and goodness to the world. And when he, when he set, set apart a people for himself, Israel, right? And Jerusalem was this special city for God, this unique city. A city that's supposed to be situated on a hill and give light to the darkness of the world. And how was that going to be accomplished? It was going to be accomplished through people he would put in power, places of influence to shepherd the flock of God, the body of God. That they would love them, that they would care for them, that they would point them towards the Lord always to teach them the right things, to, to not lord it over them and seek power, but they would be servant leaders for Israel. And see, when that happens, when we love each other well with compassion and service to one another, not expecting something in return, not, to, not for any gain, but, but out of a willingness and a, and a delight in God, as it overflows that way, the body grows and it matures the way it's supposed to mature, and then it produces a fruit that God is hoping that it would produce. But it wasn't happening in Israel. And, and for hundreds of years, this has been taking place. If you look at the Old Testament, it is just up and down, rampant with, with people that are just falling away, doing their own thing, being, being sent into captivity, right? Other nations coming in and destroying them and scattering them. Israel suffered some harsh judgment because they wouldn't get it, get it out, get it figured out. Say, worship me only. Be faithful and loyal to me only. And when God placed people in, in leadership, in positions of servant leadership, they were to serve and lead the people compassionately. And that's not what was happening. You know, you know who this, they're talking about, right? The story. When Jesus is, is making this connection, he knows the spiritual leaders that are in his audience are listening and that they know the history. They know this passage. And moreover, they know that they are now the spiritual leaders of Israel. So guess who they are? They're the ones Jesus is talking about. They're the ones Jesus is talking about. So let's break down some of these. Let's talk about the interpretation of this. Next page. There we go. So it says, see what the Lord of armies, right? It says, the Lord of armies, God himself is the vineyard owner who established and planted the vineyard. The vineyard itself represents Israel. We saw that from verse 7 of Isaiah 5. It represents Israel, God's people that he loves. He'd given them a home and he'd given them stewards. So those stewards are the vine growers, the tenants that are taking care of the property, growing the, growing the fruit, making sure it's taken care of. They represent the Jewish leaders who are responsible as stewards for the care of Israel. See, God had given his people the law and he'd called priests and scribes to teach it to them so they could obey God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that in obeying God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, that they would produce a fruit inside of them that, that reflected, again, the glory and goodness of God. That's, that's the goal here. That they would be that city situated on a hill. The fruit represents the harvest that, that should have resulted from Israel's understanding and obedience to the law. Like love and good deeds, things that, that are righteous and good. Not like the rest of the world. And that should be a wake-up call for you and I. We as the body of Christ are not to be like the world. We are called to be set apart. A city still situated on a hill, shining light into the darkness. That is the fruit that God is wanting to see in us. So that God's glory might be seen throughout all the world. The servants that he sent, the, the owner sent, right? They represent the Old Testament prophets from Moses all the way through even the New Testament prophet, John the Baptizer. All of these prophets who came, they were sent by God to warn Israel of their sin 
and to call them to obedience and repentance that they might produce that fruit that He had desired them to produce. That He could be their God and take the place of Lord. So often we like to dethrone Jesus, don't we? It's way easy when He's coming on a donkey riding into Jerusalem saying, Hosanna, Hosanna to the King. It's easy because He's right there, physically there. Before that happened, the Lord still wanted to be on the throne of their hearts. And today, Jesus Christ still wants to be on the throne of our hearts. But we like to have that spot for ourselves oftentimes. So God sends messengers. God sent messengers to, to call them to repentance. And, and even after Christ was crucified and rose from the dead, we see this played out right, in, in the apostles. And that's kind of the judgment. We'll see that in a minute. But the judgment God has, he's like, listen, I'm taking this away from you. You, you stewards that are being unwise and being wicked. You're going to be, this is going to be taken from you and given to somebody else, some unlikely heroes. So I want you to turn to the book of Acts with me. We're done in Isaiah. Turn to the book of Acts, please. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Okay. I'll try to find it too. Hit Romans, you've gone too far. Acts chapter 7. We're talking about how, how these power-hungry people treated the messengers of God, God's messengers, right? And, and now Stephen, this early church deacon, he, he wasn't necessarily, he's not considered a prophet of God. That ended after John the Baptist, right? But these were still apostles, and these were, these were church leaders who, who were passionate, filled with the Holy Spirit to live a life that was pleasing to God and, and speak the truth in love all the time even if it was unpopular. unpopular. So here's in in chapter 7, look at verse 51 and the first part of 52 with me. Chapter 7, 51 and 52. He's speaking here. He's about to get killed. Here's what he says. He says, You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are always resisting the Holy Spirit. And see, that is exactly what Jesus is talking about. Like he, he knows these Pharisees have been given instruction from the Word of God, from the Lord, from the prophets who have come before, and they are resisting the Holy Spirit. They're resisting what God Almighty wants to do in and through them. So, so there's no mincing here of, of words. This, the understanding is that this is what God wants from you, and you're choosing what He doesn't want. You are indifferent to what He's asking you to do. And when we're indifferent to what God wants us to do, that is called... Sin, right? It's called sin. He says, You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are always resisting the Holy Spirits. As your ancestors did, you do also. Talk about that knife that Jesus is, like, he's already started kind of jabbing it in there and poking them. Like, listen, this is talking about you. Stephen, later on, is still poking, poking at them. Paul, later on, when he writes his epistles, all of the New Testament is basically saying, That's all wrong. What's right is Jesus Christ, Him crucified and risen from the dead, and that He lives inside of us with power and victory. Not to give you power. Not to give you control over your enemies. But that He would be the power and the victory. So so Stephen is saying, what are you doing? And then in verse 52, he says, Which of the prophets, so going back to these messengers that came before, which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? Which ones didn't they persecute? So he's, he's aligning their heart, their actions with him and, and what they had done with the Messiah. We'll see that in a minute. He's aligning that with, with the ancestors, or the heritage of these evil leaders. For, basically saying, for generations, you, you people have continued to do this. Who are those people? 
the ones who want power and control, the ones who want to reject any notion of Messiah or lordship of the Messiah, the ones that want the power for themselves. They have continued to hurt and kill God's messengers. And then it says in the last part of that verse, even, they even killed those who foretold about the righteous one. Like, guys, listen, time out. This was supposed to be the team that we were all on. From the beginning, from Genesis 3 until now, we have been awaiting the promised one, the righteous one, the Messiah who would end this all and, and we would be serving him. And when they sent messengers to tell you about him, eh, let's kill him. What do you want? What, why are you pretending that you want that? Because you really don't. All you want is your own power, your own pockets to be lined. So, it, so listen, it's starting to get real personal. Right for the hearers of the parable. I want to put that into context for you. I share that to put it into context. It's getting really personal for the hearers of this. Jesus was making it clear that those who killed and abused the servants that he had sent before, knew, he, he knew exactly what their plans were for him. They knew exactly what was, he knew exactly what was in their heart, and that was to kill him. And, and Jesus here in this parable, God's one and only son, represents the son in the story, right? He's God's final messenger, and he's represented by the owner's son in the parable. Jesus was not merely another messenger. He was God's own son. He was the anointed one from God. He was God in the flesh. Then we see the religious leaders are like the vineyard workers in the parable. They wanted control over the inheritance, right? So they said, let's kill the son so we would remain in control of the inheritance, right? We want to remain in control of all of Israel. This is working out well for us. And, and to see what they did, so they, what they do, they murdered the promised son in the parable, and in their heart they were setting to murder the promised son already. And, and interestingly enough, the connection that will later tie in when they think about it, and when we look back and say, oh wow, that fits, what they do, they murdered the son and they threw him out of the vineyard, right? Well, the vineyard represents Israel. When, when, they, when they got a hold of Jesus and they arrested him, they took him what? To their own people said, no, that's not our thing, take him to the Romans. They, they threw him out of their own jurisdiction, and said, let the Romans crucify him. So they took him out, out of Jerusalem and took, put him on a hill, and he died where criminals die. He died a criminal's death on a hill outside of Jerusalem under the power of the Romans. Get him out of here. We're going to kill him. Get him, out of, get him out of our nation. Get him out of our stuff. Don't let him be there. Remember, remember the people's response, though? When Jesus had told this parable, remember what they said? May this never happen. May this never occur. We don't want this to occur. And then in Matthew, in the, in, the, in the parable in Matthew, it says this in 2145, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they knew he was speaking about them. He knew it. He knew that he was speaking about them. And, and interestingly, interestingly enough, here's what he was speaking about them. Back to Acts. So hopefully you're still there in, in your Bible. Acts chapter 7. It says in verse 52, the second part of it, B, they even killed those who foretold the coming of who? The righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. Yeah, your ancestors, they killed the ones, the ones that talked about Jesus coming. You know Jesus, right? Whose betrayers and murderers you all are. That's what he was saying to these Pharisees. May that never happen. Now, in their mind, in their heart, they wanted to be the, they wanted to be the reasonable one. Like, like, you know, you don't send your son. and the, Yeah, certainly the son. They will respect the son. And when G, when, I think when Jesus told this parable and he said that, 
Remember, we, we talked about that. He said the father would send the son kind of hoping that they would, they would respect the son. There was almost that instance of, of, of jest there, of sarcasm. Like, yeah, you say you'll respect me. Let's, here's for hoping. Here's wishing. You'll, you'll respect the son. You ought to respect the son, but you're not going to respect the son, right? Not at all. You received it. Said, so Stephen goes on to say in Acts, well, Paul does, quoting Stephen, he says, they, they even killed the one that foretold the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You received the law under the direction of angels, and yet you have not kept it. Remember the, the idea of the Holy Spirit, the, the influence of the Holy Spirit is there. But they're not, they're not keeping it. They're not listening to it. And, and here's the response. I want you to understand in their heart, these Pharisees, right? Because they hadn't laid a hand on Jesus. And in the story, as, as the story pertains, here's what they'd want to say. We're not the ones that killed the son. Maybe in their mind, well, we would have respected the son. But we're not the ones that killed the son. You see how they'd say that? Do I sense a little anger there? A little hatred? You know what, you know what it is that they're saying? You know what they're speaking? I'm not the one. We're not the ones that killed the son. It's a prideful position that hates everything about what Jesus is saying right now. And if you think about Jesus, when he talked about hate in our heart back in Matthew 5, what did he say? If you've hated your brother in your heart, if you've called him raka, right, fool, you, you, what, is it, what did Jesus say? You've already murdered him in your heart. He knew the Pharisee's heart. And he knew the hearts of, of all kinds of people who would reject the Messiah, any notion of Messiah, hate any notion of the Messiah, or any, any notion of truth. They didn't want anything to do with it. And those are the same hearts that murdered Jesus. That's the same hearts that put Jesus on the cross. That's why he went. Because those hearts were so far from him. The religious leaders had failed in their stewardship of Israel. And their positions were to be taken from them. And not only would it be taken away, but the stewards of, stewardship of Israel would be transferred into this unlikely group. Remember Jesus on the, next to the Sea of Galilee? He goes and what does he do? He calls 12 what? Basically fishermen, right? 12, 12 normal guys, a tax collector, some other professions. But these aren't religious, crazy people. These are just fishermen. They're guys that in their life, they, they tried. They, they all grew up in the religious kind of uh, Jewish, good, good Jewish boys. They're in good Jewish school, memorizing their texts, but couldn't quite cut it. They all, always hoped that a rabbi would say, hey, why don't you come follow me? Come follow me and I'll, I'll teach you more. You can be the religious leader. You can be a helper here. But they just never cut it. So they're out there fishing or they're, they're a tax collector, and their hearts are, are ripe for something else. And what does the rabbi do? He says, come what? Come follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. There's a stewardship position over my people available, because these guys aren't cutting it. And, and, and the apostles fought that for years, but the early church grew and gained momentum and speed by the power of the Holy Spirit, because God entrusted it to faithful, reliable leaders. So, and eventually, you didn't, you didn't just have 12 misfits. Well, they're all misfits. But not just 12 Galileans, you had 11, plus a crazy religious wingnut zealot named Saul, who was converted and became Paul. And that's how this church grew. That's what God did, so that they would shepherd God's people and carry his message to the ends of the earth. And that's the message that we still speak of today. Amen? The freedom in the message of Christ. But it was a threat to everything that they held dear mainly their own power and their own position, right? But it was a threat. So they intended to end this threat. And what Jesus did, he clearly laid out a choice. And that leads us to the last section here, the choice. 
Let's look at verses. Go back to Mark with me. Hopefully you've learned by now, whatever passage we start on, keep your ribbon there, right? Or keep your finger there, because we're going to go back. Mark chapter 12, we're going to read the last part of this parable and, and see the choice here. So remember, there's this murder, murderous venom on the hearts and lips of these Pharisees. There's this righteous indignation even in, in, the, in the listener saying, why, why are we treated this way? I don't understand this. What's going on? Like, there's this, and and their, their heart is saying, this, this can never happen. May this never occur this way. All the while it is occurring, right? So Jesus puts a choice out there. He's like, this may never happen. Here's what he says in verse number 10. He says, haven't you read this scripture? What's he saying? He's alluding to, hey, what I'm speaking is truth. Haven't you read this before? Don't you understand? This is what they will do and this is what they must do. Going on, haven't you read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and is wonderful in our eyes. They were looking for a way to arrest him, but feared the crowd because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. So they left him and went away. So, so let's talk about the last part first there, this choice. They could have arrested him, seized him right there, and seized control. But listen, Jesus came in pretty triumphal, triumphantly. He went in the temple kind of rebuking what they were doing, and now he's rebuking them in this parable. They've lost some, some power and influence, haven't they? They've lost some weight of, of their authority. So to grab them now, they probably have a mob on their hands, and the mob would probably hold them accountable. So let's, let's go away. There will be an opportune time. And certainly this is, this is culminating to the cross. There's nothing that's going to stop the culmination to the cross. And what we, what we see later on is that in a few days, in a few days' time, just a couple days, they bring Jesus before the people, and they bring Barabbas before the people. Say, listen, it's tradition to let, let someone go. Do you want to let this rabbi that's kind of hitting the heart go a little bit, or do you want to let this thief, this, this murderer, this bad guy go? Oh, yeah, let Barabbas go. Well, what are you going to do with Jesus? And what did the crowd say? Crucify him. So just a, a few, few short days later, that fear had subsided. That fear from the power-hungry uh, religious leaders had subsided. And what, what happened is they, got the, they rallied around with their influence and, and power, the crowd, the mob, to be on their side, to, to come to the light. But they drew him away from the light and drew him into this darkness, and they crucified Jesus Christ. For Israel's leaders and, and for many people today, in their ignorance, listen, this is today all around. Jesus was the stone that didn't measure up. He was rejected. He was an inadequate stone. Jesus was imperfect and unacceptable. He was not the one, and this is what it comes down to. He was not the one their heart wanted but he was the one their heart needed above everything else. So for the Pharisees there, the builders who rejected the cornerstone, the choice is still there for you and for me. Peter, Peter says something in Acts chapter 4. He, he's, he's talking to the leaders, the rulers and the elders and the people that are, that are there. They've called him in to, to, uh, for, to give an account. To kind of, they wanted to hold him accountable for teaching about Jesus and healing in Jesus' name. And here's, here's his response. They say, don't, don't go teaching and preaching in Jesus' name. Don't do this anymore. He stands up. He says, he's filled with the Spirit. And he said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man and by what means he was healed, 
Let it be known to all of you and to all the people. Who's he talking to? The leaders and the people. Because they had rallied. They had said crucify. Let them know, that all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. That sounds pretty specific, right? I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to argue with who that is. They know exactly who that is. And it just, just in case you didn't know, he goes on. By the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead. By him, this man is standing before you healthy. This Jesus, this Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. And see, Peter is, is speaking this truth to the very people who were announcing and saying crucify just, just before this. You see, and here's the great thing about this capstone, about Jesus. He's still there giving them a choice. You did reject Him and you crucified Him. But guess what? There's salvation in no one else. It's only about Jesus. And you and I still have that choice. Why do we still have that choice? Because He didn't stay dead on that cross. Because three days later, He had the authority to take His life back up again and He rose victoriously over death so that you and I could live. And He's offering that to us. And that's the choice that's being presented. Jesus wants in the parable, before he goes to, goes to the cross, he's telling him, listen, there's a choice here. You can reject me or you can accept me. That's your choice. Don't leave me on the shelf or leave me on the cross. I'm not a good teacher or a good guru. I am God in the flesh here to save you from your sin. So the choice is still there for each one of us. It's a choice that you and I have today. And here's what will happen. Jesus is, for all people, one of two things. He is either the judgment stone for those who reject him, or he is the chief cornerstone of God's salvation to those who would believe in him. And, the, and this chief cornerstone is that stone that sets itself up, in the, in the, and it's, it builds off of that. Everything else builds off of that, and everything and builds up off of that, and it becomes the foundation, the unshakable part of the structure. My life needs that unshakableness. I know there's pride here. I know there's, there's difficulty here. I know there's insecurities here. But ultimately, Jesus came to redeem those things. I want more of Jesus. I don't want to re reject the capstone because that stone is still going to be the judgment about, on, on me and over me. I want to embrace who he is and who he said he was. Yet not only did he die, he raised to life again so that you and I might live. That's what this parable is talking about, that we'd have life. Amen? Let's go ahead and stand and pray together. Father, we are so thankful that you, you knowing so far in advance, before the foundations of the world, you knew that you would come to die for us. And Lord, I know in my heart, I know there have been seasons in my life where I have consistently rejected you and pushed you away. Lord, thank you for moving in my own heart. Thank you for moving in many of our hearts, humbling us to get over ourselves, Lord, and that we might receive and believe in the Savior, 
Jesus Christ. God, humble us to, to not be so proud to keep him on the shelf as a guru, as a, as a special teacher to us. But God, that, that Jesus would reign victoriously in our heart and in our lives as King of kings and Lord of lords. And God, let us speak that truth with all love and with all grace and with all truth to the world around that we would, we would produce a fruit that you would be pleased with us. God, for the leaders in this church and for those that are leading in different capacities, God, I, I pray you would help us steward what you've entrusted to us well. That we would be servant leaders, humbling our hearts, always elevating the Scripture, always elevating Jesus, always being led by the Holy Spirit, not for our own gain, but for the glory of God. May he increase in us as we decrease. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we close our service, it's our opportunity to respond. God's stirring in us by the power of His Word and by the power of His Spirit, and we have this opportunity.